0: is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher, with me, Dr Mick Pope. COP26 is upon us, so world leaders and various advocacy groups be they presumably from the fossil fuel industry to people representing various uh christian groups and environmental groups and so on are there to ensure that real action is taken on climate change i'm not going to talk about cop this uh, episode but wait and see what comes out the first week and hopefully reflect upon that in another program i was uh, on an Instagram live chat with Jared McKenna. Jared runs the Inverse podcast. He's a award-winning peace activist. He's been arrested multiple times doing all sorts of amazing things to raise the plight of climate change and refugees and asylum seekers um, in mandatory detention and all manner of things. And it was a great chat and you can find that on Instagram if you look. So rather than address cop this week, as important as it will be to talk about it in due course, I want to follow on with uh, some comments Uh, Follow on from last week's program where I talked about expertise and if you've not listened to it, uh, just to sum up, I talked about the fact that there are various traps that people fall into, particularly Christians, I think, when it comes to the whole issue of expertise and challenging it. So people think they're entitled to their opinion and my argument was following a few different sources including the original Dunning-Kruger uh, paper and another paper by a philosopher that was entitled, No, You're Not Entitled to Your Opinion, was that, No, You're Not Entitled to Your Opinion. You're entitled to the things that you can argue for, and most of the things that we argue about on a day-to-day basis are in a derived fashion, by which I mean derived from the authority of others. So we all have uh, our own areas of expertise, and I didn't even get to talk about the issue that John Ralston Saul raises in Voltaire's Bastards about the fact that Sometimes your employer owns your particular expertise, so you are left in the public sphere talking about other things that you are not necessarily qualified for. But I am really honing in on, you know, the Facebook comments and and the social media comments that Christians make and say, you know, it's my opinion that climate change is bunkum, or that vaccines will make your testicles swell, or other ridiculous statements. And that as Christians, we need to get a lot better at two things. And the first is listening to the experts in quote-unquote, the secular areas, but also the theological ones. So we're not applying folk theology to mainstream science, for example, but also become better informed so that we know something about a whole bunch of things because, after all, we live in a democracy and we should be concerned about the issues in which we participate. It's a great way of loving your neighbour as yourself to know more about the things that affect people who aren't responsible for them, like climate change or those who are vulnerable um, the things like COVID-19 or aren't getting a fair crack at the whip of vaccines, all those sorts of issues, but not claim the expertise to be able to point to the right people and to identify the right people to, to listen to. One of the other things I think that Christians sometimes do is they throw, or some Christians, uh, I know I've got a particular caricature in mind, throw cold water on the idea that knowledge is significant or important. And that people outside the church do the exact same sort of thing. For example, they'll look at the story of the serpent in the garden in Genesis 2 and 3 and say that religion is anti-knowledge. Or you might be vaguely aware of the book of Ecclesiastes and its casting aspersions and everything being meaningless. So I want to pack two of those passages um, in the next little while. And the first thing I want to say is that the serpent is not Prometheus. So you might be aware of the story of Prometheus in Greek mythology. Prometheus is a titan, uh, the titan god of fire. So if you like, the titans were the first, maybe the second generation of gods, I guess. So the titans were the pre-Olympian gods. Remember, Zeus is the head of the, the Olympian pantheon. And Prometheus is one of the 12 children of the primordial parents, Uranus, uh, titan or god of the sky, and Gaia, the divine personification of the earth. And straight away, you might start to hear echoes of Genesis 1, for example, or indeed the Babylonian creation myth. So you've got the sky and the earth being separated by the firmament. Now, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to humanity in the form essentially of technology, knowledge and civilization. In some versions of the story, he also creates humanity from clay, uh, and he's, in other stories, he's, he's presented as the father of Ducalon, Duke. Let me get this right. Ducalion, the hero of the Greek flood story. So you can see, um, very easy to jump quickly to this story and cast um, the serpent as Prometheus, as, as the good guy in the story. Now, just as uh, a brief aside, or to bring home the importance of this, of course, fire is incredibly important. Uh, The Greeks obviously got that in in telling this story. Uh, Fire loosens or weakens the bonds of protein in both animal and vegetable foods that we eat. So we gain more nutritional value out of them. It obviously provides protection uh, from wild creatures, warmth. um, And of course, that warmth means that human beings can expand into regions that we wouldn't otherwise be able to with our basically African savannah bodies. Fire can be used in land management. So you think about the cultural burning in Australia involved in the smelting of metals and it has cultural uses for various ceremonies. Um, and of course, ultimately the burning of fossil fuels and the Anthropocene, the situation we find ourselves in. Use of fire goes back to Homo erectus one million years ago. So we've been using it as as hominids for a long, long time. There are, as have indicated, some facile similarities between the Prometheus myth and the Eden story. Um, And as I say, that's often then applied to say that religions are inherently intolerant of knowledge and learning. So some of the similarities you might see would be Genesis 4.17, which um, the heading in um, the uh, Bible I looked at online is the beginnings of civilization, which of course is at odds with the story because there are people that... um, Cain is afraid of killing him, so clearly there were already other civilizations in existence. And in verse 22 of chapter 4 of Genesis, there's a reference to bronze and iron work, but I'm not sure it indicates the origins thereof. Anyway, so is Genesis 2-3 an origin story, like paleontology, or is it something else? I believe it's something else, and let me go through some of the details. We might not get through all of these in the first half of the program. The first is, and I've said this, I think, in previous programs, is that Eden is the temple sanctuary and Adam is a royal figure who serves God there. So it's all looking at Israel and its exile and casting that back potentially into ancient time. Now, we know that Adam was uh, created out of the dust of the ground, the ground in Genesis 2, 7. That same language is used in several other places. In 1 Kings sixteen two, it says, I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people in 1 Samuel 2 8 which parallels Psalm 113 verses 7 and 8 he raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to set them among princes and so some scholars see the whole idea of Adam the Adam the human being being created out of the dust of the earth and not just out of the earth like the other creatures in the trees as a um a coronation narrative, thats I think that's the word I'm trying to hit upon, so that human beings in the garden have a royal status. Now, and we don't have time to look into this, but kings engaged in cultic duties and gardens represented royal management. Think about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. They pointed to Nebuchadnezzar's right to rule and he managed those and it said that he was fit to rule the kingdom. The other key thing is that in Genesis 2.15, Yahweh God took the Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it, Hebrew Abad, and keep it, Hebrew Shema. And this is used, when those two words are used together elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, they refer to temple service or service in the tabernacle. So in Numbers 3, 7 to 8, we read, They shall perform duties, Shema for him and for the whole congregation in front of the tent of meeting, doing service, Abad, at the tabernacle. They shall be in charge of, shemah all the finishings of the tent of meeting, and attend to the duties, shemah for the Israelites as they do service, Abad, at the tabernacle. Now, what I'm doing there is indicating that there are words derived from those two roots, Abad, which in Genesis 2 is, is translated as um, tend or work, and, and shemah, which can be keep or guard or so on. And so you get this idea that looking closely at the passage, particularly that uh, is doing service uh, about at the tabernacle, they be in charge of all the furnishings of the temple, at ten, sorry, the tent of meeting and attend to the duties for the Israelites as they do service. And so the word Shema is used to both humans and non-humans in that passage, referring to those who serve uh, in fact, yeah, those who serve in the temple and the temple elements itself. Which should tell you a lot about what it therefore means to to keep and to to tend or care for or guard in the garden. It's saying tending the garden, just as tending the elements of the temple, is an act of worship of God, enabling, in fact, uh, the garden, just as enabling the elements of the temple, to fulfill their roles. Which really points to the idea um, that caring for creation, it's a bow you have to draw, but caring for creation allows creation to be itself and in its own particular way gives worship and praise to God. That's a very compact treatment of that. But the main thing I'm trying to say is that let's set the scene of the garden in Eden and it's temple worship. It's, It's divine worship of God. Now the serpent, the serpent we learn is another one of the wild creatures that God created. And in Genesis 1 we read about uh, Tehom, the deep, the waters over which the breath of God blows, and that's uh, etymologically related to Tiamat, the dragon who the storm god Marduk in the Babylonian creation myth Enuma Elish slays and makes heavens makes the heavens and earth out of her body. So the idea is that this chaos monster is tamed by God and totally demythologized in the account. But you've also got um, the sea monsters, the children of time it created on day four. So chaos always lurks in the background. There's a kind of a, um, not in a modern philosophical fence, but the sort of way, um, but there's a, a theodicy going on. Why do bad things happen? Well, there are the forces of chaos. Well, where do they come from? Well, God made them. Or God ordered them. So, again, that takes a lot of unpacking. But the, the point is is that you have this temple service in the garden. And into that scene is introduced the serpent who says, You shall will not die. This is to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Does this sound like the, the serpent is the good guy? I don't think that it does to tease this out even further now we've got a temple if I've convinced you that is or a sanctuary view of the garden listen to these comparisons so in Genesis 2.9 the tree of knowledge of good and evil is pleasing to the sight it's pleasant to the eyes in Genesis 3.6 and desirable to make one wise Genesis 3.6 now all of these concepts are applied elsewhere to Torah the law In Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8, we read that the law of Yahweh enlightens the eyes and makes the wise simple. Further, the tablets of the law are kept in the ark, with the book of the law beside it in the holy of holies in the temple. So if the garden is the temple sanctuary, then what's the the tree of knowledge of good and evil? It's referring to the law. And so you, you get this rather paradoxical situation Then, if the Garden of Inns is talking about the sanctuary, and Adam and Eve are representative of the, the covenant people of God who are meant to seek after wisdom, who are meant to delight in the law, and you've got the serpent here saying, you know, God didn't really say this, what's really going on? It's a grasping after wisdom rather than seeking it from God, it's learning on our own terms in our own time than waiting on God. If the ejection from the garden refers to the exile, as I'm proposing, then covenant breaking is involved and idolatry. So the serpent really isn't saying, here's a a source of knowledge or wisdom about the way to live, the way to be human, uh, about technology or wisdom or whatever else that a Gnostic version might say or this is not the promethean myth instead it's about covenant relationship with god and learning wisdom from god it's about that relationship that the law and what it means to be human so we are in fact meant to be like god uh, but it's how we go about it that's the problem there's nothing in the passage that makes the serpent a liberator or knowledge itself as a sin I can't think of too many fields of human knowledge or endeavor, therefore, that would be rendered sinful. Ignorance is not bliss. It's important, um, ultimately, as human beings who are created curious, to learn about the universe around us. And so space travel is is interesting and important. To learn about the world in which we live and to better care for it. To learn about the way human bodies work and to heal them. And you might very well extend that to things like um, IVF to allow people to have children and various forms of life extension now where do you draw the line are the limits that you can go beyond where we confuse uh, being like God with actually being God Um, I think so but it's a difficult line to draw I think Um, maybe for example it's these revivification technologies you know finding DNA from a mammoth and bringing them back to life I mean why really um and I'm sure there are things that you can think about. The other would, of course, be views of ourself. Um, you know, it was Algernon. I forget Algernon's last name, but he he wrote tongue in cheek, glory to man in the highest, for he is the measure of things. And so I think one of the, the things that you could cast into this story would be atheism. Um, so anyway don't understand this story as being some kind of Promethean myth. There is nothing wrong with human knowledge and human endeavor and therefore expertise and its pursuit. So that's the first half of the program. And in the second half, we'll look at Ecclesiastes and the idea that maybe everything is meaningless. Well, welcome back to the program. In the first half, we were discussing the quote-unquote full story, which isn't the way the, the Israelites uh, would have viewed it, that for another time, and and said it was about the, the temple sanctuary and the exile of Israel and so on. And and it's, it's not a Promethean-style myth. It, it says nothing about our pursuit of knowledge. What about Ecclesiastes? Well, um, Ever read that when you're feeling a little bit down, or <laughs> the Book of Job? Um, oh, so I want to say a little bit about Ecclesiastes and the limits of scientific epistemology. What it is that we might know about the universe? Is there a thing of which it is said, "See, this is new." It has be, already been in the ages before us. That's Ecclesiastes 1.10. Arguments about teleology or purpose, for example, are nothing new, as Barrow and Tipler point out in their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle. Um, the idea that there's, there's no per- point to anything with a human striving or knowledge. And the book of Ecclesiastes is a text worth paying attention to with regards to limits on metaphysical statements. Uh, that can be made from an empirical perspective. In other words, whether or not God exists from a human standpoint, from just making observations about the world, which, if you like, is kind of the the ultimate question to ask, if you like, of which the answer is not 42. Um, and this is not to deny that, um, that, for example, metaphysics, in fact, does underpin, underpin scientific advancement. You, you make a metaphysical assumption and you move forward with it. It doesn't mean that, the methods rely upon that, or the conclusion relies upon that. But, you know, it's, for example, just to give you an example, uh, just to give you an example, there's a tautologist statement. Um, There was a point in time where the big candidate for cosmology was the Big Bang. But then Fred Hoyle, who was an atheist, didn't like that because it had theological implications, so he thought, and therefore he proposed a model of a continuous creation of matter. So yes, ideology can drive science. That, of course, is the ac- accusation that climate change sceptics will make about climate change. These, of course, I think, founder on the fact, for example, that there are people, are global scientists globally advance uh, the theory of greenhouse gases from across different countries and world views and religions and so on. But, you know, um, so what Quoheleth, the preacher uh, or teacher, demonstrates is that Pure empiricism is bankrupt. So what he says in um, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? And the word translated as um, meaningless or vanity is Hevel. And the expression Hevel, Hevelim forms an inclusion between 1, 2 and 12, 8. So that's vanity of vanities as we get it in the English of the major argument. So it brackets what's said as as goes on. It's, if you like, a superlative, like the Song of Songs or the Holy of Holies in the Temple. Expressing the utter pointlessness of all things. Uh, C.H. Bullock uh, claims that Ecclesiastes represents part of the biblical sceptical tradition. However, Derek Kidner rightly notes that the emphasis... uh, that the emphasis of, quote, under the sun, a phrase that's used 28 times in the book, is on the world that we can observe. In other words, it's empiricism and it's limits that are under consideration. So knowledge, in other words, this is, if we buy into what Quaheleth is saying, knowledge has its limits. And guess what? People understand that. So Kurt Gödel came up with uh, Gödel's theorem, which basically said that you can't prove everything. Even the most concrete systems of knowledge, like mathematics, you start with axioms you can't prove and then proceed forward. So that's just an example. So uh, Quaheleth adopts a horizontal or secular perspective considering life apart from God. There are similar phrases um, to under the sun, like under heaven, I said to myself, I perceived and I saw so an exercise in the kind of empiricism that scientists engage in. From this empirical perspective of observation, without metaphysical presuppositions, other than perhaps, I guess, a functional atheism, Quahileth gathers evidence. Human civilization and nature undergo an endless cycle without apparent progress, according uh, to the teacher. That's 1, 4 to 11. Epochs past, that is, whole periods of history human civilizations etc but the earth remains now of course you can see straight away part of the problem with that because of course the earth has changed dramatically even in the life uh, time of the lifespan or the period of history rather say since fire was discovered by our ancestor homo erectus that's one million years but think about the 4.5 billion years of geological change on the earth the cycles of nature go on and on without end well i guess that's true Ideas are nothing new, but are recycled, even when those who taught them before are not remembered. And here you're starting to run into some problems, I guess, because science does deliver new knowledge. And so this, this statement isn't that was j- true in Quaheleth's day isn't really quite true in some senses in her own, and in others it still is. Now, Quaheleth applies himself to wisdom, and gained much knowledge, but found that it only produced vexation and sorrow. (laughs) And anyone who studied a a higher degree will be familiar with this kind of feeling. I'm pretty sure I used a quote from Ecclesiastes at the end of, might have been my master's degree in in astrophysics. There is no end to learning. Yeah, Ecclesiastes 12.12, I would have used that and of the reading of books, there is no end from memory, uh, the more one learns, the clearer it becomes that life is meaningless from this perspective. Now, herein lies the problem with empiricism, does it not? And, and maybe also the, the slant that you take. But someone like Steven Weinberg, I think passed, passed away a few years back, uh, a staunch atheist, stated that the more we know about the universe, the more it is evident that it is pointless and meaningless. Do you agree? I wonder. Wisdom has more profit than folly. uh, Ecclesiastes 2.13 But death awaits both the fool and the wise man. We all die. And they all appear to go to the one place. And indeed, um, remember, this is pre, well and truly pre any thoughts about resurrection and the Hebrew Bible is pretty ambiguous about, quote unquote, the afterlife. uh, A lot more so than a lot of... uh, christian pop theology much of which is used to downplay the importance of uh, creation care for example humans appear no better than animals in that death takes them both goheleth describes in detail the physical and emotional decline of old age uh, i'm 52 so i'm starting to think about that uh, that brings no pleasure leading to death hence death ensures that human existence has no ultimate meaning because it is frustrated uh, by by human death However, Koheleth's own perspective is that God is the creator of all things. God is also sovereign and has a divinely appointed time for everything where everything is beautiful in its time. So that's Ecclesiastes 3. Um, Interesting passage when you think about how sovereignty works. A topic for another time. The end of this list uh, is a question. What gain do workers have from their toil? God has given to everyone the things with which to be busy with, it is here that the twofold experience of divinely pointed frustration and enjoyment um, appears. Uh, this is not a lament of the ceaseless round of life, but Michael Eaton claims that it is part of the basic optimism of Koheleth. Well, you know, Koheleth, you get to enjoy stuff. Um, life is full of restlessness in chapter 1 that God has given to mortals. Everything done under the sun is a striving after wind. It is Hevel. As Kitner notes, the crooked is the human situation not the human heart, in verse uh, chapter 7, verse 13, which God created as upright. And so you see here hints of Genesis 1 through 3 and further about the goodness of human beings as created, something that we need to continue to come back to, as well as the, the, the cro- crooked nature as well. So we hold two things in balance at once about human beings. Humans reject God, and hence he subjected the whole creation to frustration which, of course, Paul echoes in Romans 8. Um, but, of course, in Romans 8, it's it's subject to frustration and hope, a hope which is muted in Ecclesiastes, uh, where it's a hope of justice. The wicked appear to escape justice now. However, there is to be a judgment discussed in chapter 11 and 12. Judgment requires a sovereign God with a plan. Um, and so chapter 1 verses 13 to 15 moves outside the secularist vision to show us this divine plan. And that's one of the reasons that some people sometimes argue about different sources for Ecclesiastes, that it's, uh, you know, there's a a very secular and, um, uh, I was going to say miserable, that's not quite what I'm reaching for, but you get it, um not very optimistic view of life and then someone comes along and slaps on some positive theology to it. Read as a whole, there's a real balance involved, I think. While the, good, uh, while the horizontal view questions whether humans are any different to animals, discussed in chapter 3, God has placed eternity into the human heart, not merely to pass like shadows. So, not knowing anything about evolution, basically, Quaheleth is saying, in modern speak, that we're not stuck with... You know, these over, over-evolved brains in a primate that evolved wandering about an African savannah stuck with an understanding of her own mortality without that pointing to something else other than just having big brains and, and struggling along. Instead, the writer wants to say that um, there is something beyond. Um and so this eternity is in our hearts. We're not merely to pass like shadows yet. We cannot find out what God has done. In other words, there's a veil. There's an epistemological uh, limitation to human understanding that's divinely built in. So there's no Gnostic secret knowledge that you push back the veil and understand. Um, there's what we see with our senses. And that's a heck of a lot which I guess is the point that I've been trying to make in the first half of the program and last program, that science does deliver, philosophy poses genuinely valuable questions and tools with which to interrogate the results of science. And then you have theology, which as an endeavor ultimately needs to be informed from the outside. Why? Because um, God as divine wisdom is inscrutable. When Quaheleth tries to apply his mind to the work of God using wisdom, he found out he could not. Chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. So, in the first half of the program, I said that it's not wrong to pursue knowledge and and wisdom about the world. That's not what Genesis 2 and 3 is about. The serpent is not Prometheus, God is not a killjoy. But if you enter into a covenant relationship with God, that's a relationship that you have to um, respect and you learn from God rather than grasping after those good things of your own might. So let's cast that then into the modern kind of setting. Firstly, pure empirical knowledge or materialism whether or not it's a philosophical materialism or it's just a methodological kind of materialism or naturalism is the word I'm looking for, with which to crank the handle on science, is ultimately philosophically bankrupt. Uh, it lends little point to the scientific enterprise. It, just on that alone, you're a striving after the wind. Secondly, death frustrates all human endeavour. Let's not get around that. I mean, you might be remembered for a time, you might make some great contributions to something or other, but we all die in the end. You die, those who come after you, whom you love die, how many generations before you're forgotten? Um, Human understanding of teleology or purpose is inextricably tied up in our personal identity. And this is an interesting one as I think about it, because as I said, I'm 52, don't know what my future is going to be, but obviously my younger years are behind me. So I, I think about my own personal existential crisis, which will be my personal death. But then COP twenty six is happening right now, with a real shifting or turning point in history, and I'm thinking about the existential crisis of the entire planet, and indeed those who will come after me. <sighs> While the whole biblical teleology is not concerned solely with human experience. If human beings are the image of God, as we read about in Genesis 1, then teleology or purpose is made or broken on the issue of thanatology, which is a theology of death. Which is why I think a resurrection and a subjective experience of that to um, kind of counter what some process theologians will, will want to push is essential. 3. Schemes that seek to deal with the relationship between death, suffering, and the apparent futility of the natural world must include a robust view of the sovereignty of God. Um, I wrote that a long while ago, and just reflecting upon this idea about process theology and open theology and the universe unfolding, is that in our fancy schemes to try and account for the issue and the problem of evil, we must still leave room for God to be able to sum all things up. Even while we're looking for greater um, room for our own responsibility and action. And I was just chatting with someone on Facebook tonight. There are those who think simply as soon as you stress a certain degree of human freedom that you think that we can bring in the kingdom of God. No, we express the present reality of it, but we're still waiting for something. And so we push forward and we push forward and we continue to try and be the answer to our own prayers, which is why I think Christians should be so vocal in the space of climate change, for example, because it's such a pressing existential crisis that will affect everyone and human beings are responsible. And so the church, given it believes in a God who makes something beautiful and will make all things new. Maybe doing elements of that through us. So, anyway. Uh, Point four judgment on human uh, affairs affirms a directionality to history. Uh, Now, this can't be used to establish a kind of Whiggish view that history itself shows progression. And I hate the phrase the wrong side of history. Because who knows? You know, how, how can you use that statement? Unless, of course, you have an idea of what a peaceful and just future world will look like, a, a world of shalom. Um, and indeed, we rely upon, as I say before, some kind of divine intervention or acting in the history of this planet and ultimately the universe. But now's not the time to go into physical eschatology and the heat death and all that kind of stuff. Um Five, the argument for religious experience is related to um, arguments about purpose. Ultimate metaphysical conclusions cannot be drawn from empirical epistemology. What I mean by this statement um, is that religion is something that has to be experienced. How does that relate back to what I was talking about earlier? Well, maybe this is kind of a, a tangential comment in this context from when I first wrote all this stuff, but in essence, to understand that you're on this journey with God to learn about the world around you, to gain expertise, or to be able to understand enough to expect—sorry, uh, respect the expertise of others, um, that this is what God is doing, well, then you need to have a religious experience of that. And that transcends your learning. So I guess it's a fancy way of saying that Being a Christian is concerned about the world and working in the spaces about knowing God and not just knowing about God or knowing what God wants to do with the world rather than just knowing about how the world works from a kind of mechanical point of view. As important as that is. Last point. Our world is different yet the same to the the world of the the teacher. A quaheleth signs and covers genuinely new things and much good and useful things at the same time But humans are very much the same, that mixed bag of crooked and straight, of created good, meant to be good, but uh, grasping after wisdom, grasping after knowledge. So overall, I want to say that the Bible isn't anti-knowledge at all. It places all human knowing under a cloud, however. Humans are finite and cannot know all things, only what is possible for us to know. However, expertise is to be valued, sought out, and respected, as I stated last week, And this is particularly apt as we watch events at COP26 in Glasgow and hope that the expertise of climate scientists is taken seriously and followed by our policymakers. So thanks for listening uh, to that ramble once more, and as always, God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison, with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.